Welcome, and thank you for joining us on the City Point Church Sermon Podcast, where our desire is to help you follow Jesus. We are so glad that you are here, and wherever you are listening from, we believe that God has something in store for you through today's message. I invite you this morning to uh, find your Bible and open it up, if you would, and we are going to be in the book of Haggai. And Haggai is this obscure, small little book in the Old Testament. If you're not real familiar with navigating your Bible, if you end up in like Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, just go to the left a little bit. You're in the New Testament. You want to keep going back. This is a small book. It's only 38 verses. It's broken down into two chapters, but it is loaded with content for us today as new covenant followers of God. And we have been walking through this. We've entitled this Kingdom First kingdom first. And if you're just joining us, I want to give you some backstory so that you can get caught up and know where we're going in in this week's paragraph that we're going to be walking through. Some years prior to what we're about to read, a king by the name of Solomon built a temple in Jerusalem for the people of God. That temple represented the very presence of God among his people. It was where the relationship between God and man was mediated. And so that temple was built, and it was built in splendor and beauty. But some years later, a nation by the name of Babylon came in and destroyed that temple, reduced it to rubble, and took all of the Jewish people and led them away, 900 miles away, into exile. A short time after that, really 50 years after that, another nation came along, the Persian nation, and defeated the Babylonian nation and assumed responsibility for those Jewish people. And the Persians were a lot more religiously tolerant, and so they said to the Jews, those of you who want to, you can go back to Jerusalem, and you can can live your life, and you can start rebuilding your temple, and you can worship your God. And so a remnant of them return back from exile, back to Jerusalem, and they begin the work on the foundation of the temple. Well, some things start to happen. Some neighboring nations start to hear about this, and they start to discourage the Jews, and they stop rebuilding the temple. And 15 years pass, and that brings us to the doorstep of the book of Haggai. Haggai is a prophet, and the responsibility of a prophet was to be the one who would bring the word of God to the people and to essentially call those people back to the covenant, back to their relationship with God. And so Haggai, as the prophet, has four messages throughout this book from God to the people. This is our third week here, and so we're going to be picking up in the third message. But the first message was in chapter 1, where Haggai was telling them that they needed to prioritize God's kingdom first. They were building their own houses. They had gotten back to their own lives. They were building their castles and their kingdoms, and God's house was still in ruin. The temple was still in ruin. And so Haggai was calling them to go up to the hills to bring the wood and to build the house, to prioritize again the presence of God among his people. The second message came just a few weeks later. This was last week. And now Haggai was talking to them about kingdom vision. They were looking in the rearview mirror rather than through the front windshield. There was a segment of people that were old enough to remember Solomon's temple. They remembered the temple and all of its splendor and all of its adornment and all of its outward glory. And Haggai says, you've forgotten that what makes the temple the temple is not the gold and the trappings and the adornment, but the very presence of God. And so, yes, ministry might look different today, but the presence of God has stayed the same. 
You've lost your kingdom vision and your kingdom perspective. And now today in this third message, Haggai is going to come with a third word from God to the people. And God wants to clearly establish to the people the basis for his blessing in their covenant relationship. So we're going to pick it up in chapter 2, verse 10. By the way, if you don't have a copy of God's word, there's one underneath a chair nearby. You can use that copy and page 743 will get you right to Haggai. You won't have to fumble through it like the rest of us had to do to try to find it. Haggai chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 10, read down through verse 19. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Here is God's word to the people. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it, the common food, become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, referencing back to the common food, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measure, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. God says, I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider. From this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, God declares, I will bless you. So what's going on here? I want to give you a big idea, a through line that helps us to understand what God is seeking to communicate through this specific, unique paragraph in his Holy Scripture. Here's the big idea. You can write it down if you're keeping notes. God's covenant relationship is a gift of grace. God's covenant relationship, God's dealing with his people, his covenant relationship with them is a gift of grace. Have you ever received... A conditional gift. It sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? A gift that comes with strings attached to it. These actually do exist. As a matter of fact, in the legal world, a, a testator can put conditions on a gift. For instance, if a grandfather has a will and wants to leave money, maybe to a granddaughter, and says, I will give this sum of money to her as long as she completes law school. That condition must be met in order for her to receive that gift. It's a conditional gift. How about gift cards? Think about it. Every gift card is a conditional gift. You can't take a gift card to Starbucks and go use it at Dutch Bros. It doesn't work that way. It's conditioned. You have to use it at the place that it was designated to be used at. 
And I know what you're thinking. Well, I buy Visa gift cards. Okay. Well, what, what about when you walk up to your favorite food truck and there's a sign in the window that says cash only? Like even then, you can only use that gift card where Visa is accepted. When I was a kid growing up, uh, my siblings and I, we received a conditional gift one Christmas. Now, my parents, they're a little old school, uh, which, by the way, as I've gotten older, I've appreciated how old school they were and still are. So we did not, my parents did not get on the video game bandwagon very quickly when I was a young kid. I grew up in the late 80s, early 90s. So if I wanted to play video games, I had to go to the next street over to my friend's house to play video games with him. So we didn't really have video games in the house. But one Christmas, my parents bought for us a Nintendo Entertainment System. I mean, it was, folks, it was, it was something else. That was the Christmas of all Christmases. But my dad attached some conditions to that gift. Some of them were reasonable. Some of them a little less reasonable. One of the conditions was we could play that Nintendo Entertainment System. First of all, he, gave, he did give us an unconditional gift of 30 minutes every day. That was his gracious benevolence to us as his children whom he loved. That we could play for 30 minutes, no strings attached. But if we wanted any additional time, we had to read. And we could play the video game for the same amount of time that we read a book. So we'd get our 30 minutes, and if I wanted another 30 minutes, I had to read a book. I have this memory of myself sitting on the couch with a book open on my lap, watching my brother play video games. I don't know if I was trying to like get my extra time while also enjoying him play. Maybe that's reasonable, but some of the conditions that my dad put on this video game system were a little less reasonable. Along with the video game, the, the Nintendo that he bought us, he also bought us three games. And this was the condition. We had to beat the first game before we could play the second game. Like we had to completely like work through the whole game and beat it. And then we could go on to the next one. Then we had to beat that one before we go on to the third one. That condition didn't last very long. I want you to understand this morning that God does not give to us the gift of relationship based on conditions. It's not, an it's not a conditional gift where there are some strings attached to it and you have to jump through some hoops and you have to perform some things and you have to read an extra 30 minutes a day in order to get the video game time. There's no conditions that he's attaching to this gift. It is a gift of grace. And the problem with conditional relationships is that conditional relationships lead to a great amount of insecurity. It's like the Disney princess who's pulling the petals off of the flower. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. And when you think that your relationship with God is conditional day to day, you're wondering to yourself, am I good? Like, God, am I good with you? Are you good with me? Are we okay? Do you love me today? Did I mess up yesterday? Has that impeded my relationship with you? And there's this constant insecurity because we think that the covenant relationship with God is conditional to us. So we get into this performance mode. And we think that the more we do, the more God will bless. And the more God will be pleased. And the more favor I will have with him. And that's born out of a misunderstanding of our covenant relationship with God. And so here we are in Haggai chapter 2. The people of God have come to a monumental moment. They have returned by faith 
in obedience to the word from the prophet back to the rebuilding of the temple, emphasizing the relational component of their covenant relationship with God. They've come back to it, and God is saying, from this point on, I am going to bless you. And my blessings to you will not be based on your performance for me, but because I am a good, loving, gracious, benevolent God. It's who I am. And that's what God desires to communicate to them. So God's covenant relationship is a gift of grace. That's the big idea that sits over top of this text. So the question that we want to ask, and really that I believe this text will answer is, why? Why is a relationship with God a gift of grace? We're going to see it right from Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 through 19. Three reasons why. Number one, if you're keeping notes, it's going to look like this. My relationship with God is a gift of grace because, number one, spiritual uncleanness is pervasive. Spiritual uncleanness is pervasive. Look back at the text in verse 11. Thus says the Lord of hosts, this is the word of God, to and through Haggai to the people. Ask the priests about the law. Now this would have made sense because the priests, that was their jurisdiction. They were the keepers of the law, they were the interpreters of the law, and they were to take the law to the people and help the people to understand what the law said. So he says, go to the priests and ask the priests. He's going to ask them two questions. The first question is going to be a question of theology. It's going to give us a window into who God is. And the second question is a question of anthropology. It's going to give us an understanding of who man is. So he says, ask the priests about the law. Verse 12, here's the first question. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? So what's going on here? Well, the priests, the Levitical priests who were in charge of the sacrifices in the temple would sanctify and set apart meat that was specific for those sacrifices. And when they would set it apart, it was considered holy. God sanctified it. God set it apart. Then those priests would take that holy meat and they would put it into the fold of their garment. They would carry it in the garment to preserve it and to protect it so that they could get it to the temple. And so the question here is, if, if common food, the bread, the stew, and the wine, is carried in the same fold of the garment that touched the holy meat, does the common food become holy because it rubbed up against the garment that was carrying the holy meat? And the answer is no. The holiness of God, the very character of God, does not get indirectly transferred. It must be directly imputed. And so you don't just become holy because you're bumping up against holy things. And we get this, even in our everyday lives, you don't catch health. You catch sickness. Right? That's why you stay home from work or you keep your kids home from school when they're not feeling well because you don't want other kids to catch the uncleanness. You don't catch health. You catch uncleanness. So you don't catch holiness. You don't just, you don't just indirectly catch the holiness of God because you rub up against it. That's the first question. The second question is related to man. Look at verse 13. Then Haggai said, Well, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, speaking, re referencing back to verse 12, the, the common food of the, the, the bread and the wine and the stew, does it become unclean? And the priest answered correctly, and they said, it does become unclean. 
And so if you were to study Levitical law, Leviticus 21, verse 11, talks about how when someone comes in contact with a dead body, they were considered ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. And so if somebody comes in contact with a dead body and then goes and touches this common food, that common food does become unclean. Uncleanness is far more contagious than holiness. And so man's uncleanness contaminates everything he touches while God's holiness cannot be indirectly transferred. Those are the two lessons that he's trying to teach from these questions. And then in verse 14, he makes direct application to the people. Look at verse 14. Haggai answered and said, so is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. And So here's what's going on. The people of God, the Israelites, they thought that because they were putting their hand to the holy work of the foundation of the temple, because they were touching those holy stones, that it was transferring the holiness of God to them. Haggai's saying, the holiness of God doesn't work that way. Then the same people of God who had been who were pervasively unclean were going to touch that, the stones of that temple and they were going to the work of God. And Haggai's also saying that because now the people of God, your hands are unclean, your religion and your rituals and your work for God becomes unclean because you're unclean. So like we've got a serious problem here for these people. So what's the application for you and for me today? Like what are we to learn from this portion of the paragraph? Well, it's bad news, but don't worry, we're going to get to some good news, but we got to start with the bad news because we don't understand how good the good news is until we understand how bad the bad news is. So the bad news for you and for me is that we are all born spiritually unclean, and it is pervasive. Everything that we touch is infected by our sinfulness and by the uncleanness of who we are at the core. It's like when you take a red sock and you put it into your white load of laundry. What happens when you take your laundry out? You now have pink clothing, right? That red sock has contaminated everything in that load of wash. And our spiritual sinfulness contaminates every area of our life. Paul says that a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. And so the lessons for us are, again, there's two of them from both of these questions. The first lesson is that when I rub up against the holiness of God, it doesn't transfer God's holiness to me. This is essentially religion today. Religion is man's attempt to put their hand to a holy work and therefore indirectly receive the holiness of God, and it doesn't work that way. God's holiness does not get indirectly transferred because we do some religious spiritual things. People attempt to do this by going to church and by being baptized and going to confession and doing confirmation and maybe getting involved even at a local church. And say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to serve and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use giftings that I have to try to... And all that is is they're putting their hand to the work of God thinking that because the work is holy, because it's been set apart by God, that that will transfer to them. And it just doesn't work that way. And I know that for some of you in this room, that used to be your story. And the reason I know it was your story, because you've been baptized here up on this stage, and when you were baptized, you shared your story. And in your story, you said something to the effect of, I grew up going to church. I thought that being around Christian people was enough to earn me God's favor, but I came to the point where I realized that 
I had to accept Jesus personally for myself. And what you were communicating in that moment is that I knew that just by touching churchy things and spiritual things, that that didn't just automatically make me spiritual. So that was some of you in this room. But I believe that there are others in this room where that actually still needs to become your story. Because even your presence here today is your attempt to get close to the things that are holy, to bump up against the things that are spiritual, and somehow, hopefully, maybe you are, you are wishing and desiring that that will gift to you the holiness of God. And it just doesn't work that way. There has to be a moment of faith when you make that choice to follow Jesus and say, God, I receive your gift of eternal life through Christ. But the second lesson here is that doing religious work with hands that are defiled actually infects the work that we are doing. And now even my religious effort and my religious work, because of the pervasiveness of my sin, contaminates everything that I do. So we cannot fully understand grace in all of its glory and all of its splendor and all of its beauty until we first understand our own depravity, our own sinfulness, our own lostness. And so the first point, it's a little discouraging, but we got to understand it. In order to understand that our relationship with God is a gift of grace, we must first see that our spiritual uncleanness is pervasive. But number two, my relationship with God is a gift of grace because personal striving is futile. Personal striving. My ability to try to right my wrongs and remedy my life and fix my situation is futile. It, it's going to amount to nothing of eternal significance. Haggai points it out here in verse 15. Look at it with me if you would. He says, Now then consider, from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord. He's establishing a marker, if you will, almost like a signpost. The foundation becomes the signpost. Everything before the laying of the foundation represents your, your life pre-covenant relationship with God, and everything after this signpost, after the laying of the foundation, represents everything post your covenant relationship with God. So before, we're looking before the relationship, stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord. How did you fare? Like, what did all of your striving produce in your life? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were about 10 when one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. So you were getting like a 50%, maybe a 40% return on your investment. All of your effort, all of your work, all of your striving, apart from God, you were just spinning your wheels. And if you were here two weeks ago, God emphasized this in the first message to Haggai. He says you're planting, you're planting food, you're not really getting a harvest, you're trying to put clothing on, but you're not really getting warm, you're putting, you're putting uh, your, your money into a bag and it seems like that bag's got holes in it, it's just like falling out the other side, because all of our personal striving is futile. It amounts to nothing. And he's trying to point that out. Now why is this happening? Look at verse 17. God says very pointedly, very clearly, I, that I is God speaking, I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Say, why? God seems like he's being a little mean here, a little unreasonable. 
God is not going to allow you to be your own savior. He's not going to allow you to succeed apart from him. Because he is the only one who can give true, eternal, lasting, spiritual blessing. And the whole point of this, God says, he says, I struck you. Why? In order that you might turn. That you might come back. That you might recognize your need for me. So you could look at this and see, say that this is the loving, gracious hand of a God who wants his people to come back to relationship because that is where we are, we are safe, that is where we are protected, that is where we are provided for, that is where we are blessed. Only within that covenant relationship where God is sitting on the throne of our hearts. God said, I did all of this in order that you might turn, but you didn't do it. Because works can never earn God's favor. If you've been coming to church, you've probably heard a statement similar to that. That your works, nothing you do, can earn you favor and position and prominence with God but yet it still shows up. And I've seen this and I've heard this. It, it shows up in two, one of two places. Either it shows up at salvation when somebody is wanting to come into a relationship with God and have their sin forgiven. They think that their striving and their work will somehow earn them forgiveness of sin in a relationship with God. But God says through Paul in the New Testament, Ephesians 2, for by grace you've been saved through faith and this, the salvation, is not of your own it's a gift of God, not a result of works. So if you're trying to find the salvation of your soul and the forgiveness of your sin through your own works and your own merits and your own spirituality and your own religiosity, it's futile. But it also shows up in a second way, and that's through our sanctification. We think that we can somehow earn God's favor in our spiritual growth, which is what sanctification essentially is, by doing more for God. And the more I do for God, the more God will bless me. Well, Paul in the New Testament again addresses this in Galatians 3, verse 3, when he says, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now perfected by the flesh? Understand what he's saying. You get in by the Spirit. It is the gracious gift of God. And now are you so foolish to think that you get through by your own striving and by your own working and by your flesh? Paul says you're foolish. You're foolish to think that either salvation or sanctification is somehow based on your own merit and your own good deeds and your own work to earn God's favor. It doesn't work that way. And so we have here the two false gospels of the modern church today. The first false gospel is legalism, that somehow you have to do more than what Christ already did to have salvation. And the second false gospel is prosperity. That now that you are a follower of Jesus, that somehow God will favor you and bless you because of what you do for him. And both of those are a misunderstanding and a misrepresentation of what God has come to give us through Christ. So it comes down to this. There is no special algorithm for God's blessing. There's not some code that you have to crack some series of things that you have to do that have to line up in your life in order for God to say, okay, well now I will bless you. Our second son, Austin, bought a, he's right down here. He wants you to know who he is. He, he bought a Rubik's Cube about two weeks ago. And just about every one of us at kids at some point thought that we could conquer a Rubik's Cube. And if you were anything like me, you got about 30 seconds into it and said, this is stupid, it's not worth it. And you peeled off the stickers and you fixed it by your own striving and your own futile effort. 
But Austin was not like me as a child, and he's actually figured out the Rubik's Cube. Now, he was with the help of YouTube, which we didn't have as kids. And so he's watched some YouTube things, and he's got it down. He can do it in under two minutes. I think a minute 40, I timed him last night. He was able to solve this Rubik's Cube. But you know what a Rubik's Cube is? It's essentially just a series of algorithms. And so he's learned the algorithms. You look at the shape of the colors, and based on what you see in the colors, it's this algorithm. And then you see another set of colors, and it's another algorithm. And then another set of colors, and it's another algorithm. And eventually, when you do the right algorithms, this plus this plus this plus this plus this equals you've solved the Rubik's Cube. And I'm afraid many view a relationship with God that way. That if I do church attendance, plus if I clean my life up a little bit more, plus if I do some religious duties, this plus this plus this plus this will equal God's blessing. And if I can just crack the code and figure out the algorithm that God will bless my life. But God is saying to the people of God here, look back. Before the foundation was laid, before stone was placed upon stone, how did you fare? What did all of your striving produce? A 40, a 50% return, bags with holes in it. That's what you accomplished. But there's a better way. God is not a demanding master who created us to be his servants, who wait on him, do his bidding, and execute his commands. Instead, he is the good father who created us first and foremost for his glory and then for a relationship with himself. So he's not waiting for you to perform. He's wanting you to abide, to be with him. So we're almost at the climax of the text here. It's leading somewhere. It's been a little bleak. It's been a little discouraging. But again, you've got to understand just how bad the bad news is before you can really appreciate the good news, which we're going to find here in the third point. My relationship with God is a gift of grace because, number three, covenant blessing is unconditional. No strings attached. No performance required. God is now going to say, I will bless you. Look at it in verse 18. Again, the foundation is the signpost. So everything before the laying of the foundation represents their life before the relationship. Verse 18, God says, now consider from this day onward, then he time stamps it, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing, but from this day on, God says, I will bless you. It is an unconditional gift of God, this relationship, followed by his spiritual blessing and his provision in our lives. They turn by faith back to God, and now God unconditionally pours out his blessing upon them. What I love about this is he doesn't wait for the temple to be finished. It's not like there's a probation period here. This is, they just, all they did was put their hand back to the foundation. They just started. And God doesn't say, well, I'm going to incrementally give you doses of my blessing as I see that you are faithful and continuing in this. No, God says, from this day on, I give you this promise that I, God says, will bless you. Essentially, from day one of the rebuild. Because blessings begin at the foundation. I want you to see something. I want you to understand. I want to build a bridge here from the old covenant to the new covenant. 
The temple in the old covenant represented the union place of God, where God had a relationship with his people. Let me ask you this morning, it's not a trick question, where is the temple of God today? His people. We are the temple, the dwelling place of the Spirit of God. God inhabits his people now, and so we as the people of God, we are the dwelling place of God. So the temple represents the dwelling place of God. The foundation that they are laying here in Haggai represents the beginning, the the groundwork, the start of that relationship. And so we see that there are gospel overtones here because Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So what is the foundation for you and for me for our covenant relationship with God where we are now the temple of God and the very presence of God, where, where the presence of God abides within us? What is the foundation of our relationship? Jesus. And the blessing of God comes at the beginning of that relationship when the foundation of Christ is laid in an individual's life and by faith they turn to Christ and they receive that free gift of eternal life. God blesses them unconditionally with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so when Jesus is your foundation, Peter will say in 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power has granted to us All things that pertain to life and godliness, not some things, not most things, not there's this probational period to see if you're going to be faithful in this, not I'm going to give you a portion of my spirit today and a portion of my spirit later. It is all things at once, the blessing of God, his presence, his spirit, his grace, his promises in our life. Right at the foundation, right at the start. And if you today have put faith in Christ, you have the blessings of God, the person of the Spirit of God at work in your life. Blessings begin at the foundation, but I love what's going on in verse 19. Blessings continue by faith. Look at verse 19. It's a rhetorical question that you may or may not know the answer to. Is the seed yet in the barn? You got a 50% shot at this. The answer is no. Somebody got it. Zarius got it. The answer is no. The seed is not in the barn. You say, John, how do you know the seed's not in the barn? Well, he time-stamped this. It's the ninth month on the Hebrew calendar. That's December. Which means that the seed would have been planted in October, the early, before the early rain. So the seed is in the ground. It's not in the barn. And then he further, additionally, he says, the fig, the pomegranate, the olive tree have not yet yielded. Why? Well, because it's not harvest time yet. The seed is in the ground. So what God is saying to them is that you are going to have to trust my promise by faith that a harvest is coming. And if for the people of God, if the past was any indication of the future, it wasn't going to be very good. Because all they were getting was a 40-50% return on what they were planting in the ground. But God says, things are different now. Things are different now because you have entered into this covenant relationship with me. And so you are going to have to trust without any visual evidence of my provision or my blessing. Trust my promise. That I will do for you what I have promised to do. And some of you here this morning, you might be looking for visual evidence You might want to see the evidence of something sprouting out of the ground, but I want you to understand that you don't need visual evidence because you have a promise. And God's promise to you and to me is, I will bless you.
And when God says it, it's as good as done. Trust and believe by faith. The road ahead is going to be very different for the people of God than the road behind. That signpost represents the foundation. When they came back to the foundation, when they emphasized the temple, the presence of God in their life, everything before that wasn't so great. God says, everything after this, I'm going to bless you unconditionally. From this day on, I'll bless you. Now, one of my favorite musicals is The Greatest Showman. It's got some of the most epic music. I love it. It's hard to not, like, tap your toe and sing along with it at the top of your lungs. So P.T. Barnum, who's the main character in The Greatest Showman, has this dream, and he chases his dream that he wants to, he wants to produce the greatest show on earth, unlike anything that anybody's ever seen. Unfortunately, he does it at the expense of his family, his friends, and even his reputation. So P.T. Barnum gets to the end of the story, the end of the movie, and he comes face to face with the reality of his decisions and the reality of his past, and he sings a song. And that song is called, From Now On. From Now On. And there's a line, there are some lyrics in that song that go like this. Let this promise in me start like an anthem in my heart. From now on, from now on. And if you are here as a child of God, you have been purchased by the blood of Christ, your sins have been forgiven, and you have a new, vibrant relationship with God through His Spirit, you have an anthem based on a promise. And you can sing it. You can channel your inner Hugh Jackman, okay? Listen, I, if you were here last Sunday, I sang for you. I'm not singing for you today. But you can go home and you can channel your inner Hugh Jackman and you can sing from now on, from now on. The blessing of God has been promised to you. That blessing comes through his spirit. That blessing is these spiritual blessings in, in heavenly places through Christ. It is the promise of his presence, of his provision, of his protection in your life. I don't know what the future holds for you, but you have a promise that God will be with you. The sin of your past is erased, the foundation of your relationship is secure, and the promise of God's spiritual blessing is unconditional. He's not withholding it from you. So here's that big idea. God's covenant relationship is a gift of grace. God's not asking you to perform He's not asking you to crack the code and figure out the algorithm and then he'll bless. It's unconditional. But I want to answer one final question, really address one final issue, just because of the first point. When you think about the people of God touching the holy work of God with unclean hands, the prophet says, you've defiled the whole work. I want you to think about this statement. Clean hands are required to do clean work. Clean hands are required to do clean work. So the question is, how can we, who according to what we've studied today, who have unclean hands, do a clean work for God? How is that possible? If my sin and my uncleanness is so pervasive, how can I do anything of any eternal value? Is everything that I touch now as a follower of Jesus, is it made unclean? I want to share two verses with you. I'm going to put it up on the screen. 1 Peter 2, verses 4, 4 and 5. Look at what Peter says here. He says, as you come to him, that is to Jesus, as a living stone, that's the foundation, rejected by men but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones because you are now the temple 
are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priest, priesthood, here it is, to offer spiritual sacrifices. What's the next word? Acceptable. Acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we who have sin-stained hands can now offer sacrifices, a work for God that is acceptable, or you could say clean, because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. You see, he took all of our uncleanness and he took all of our shame, all of, its, all of the pervasive wickedness that was true about us. Jesus took that upon himself and he paid the debt that we owed and he erased that sin debt so that now you and I are clean. And so go serve God and go do the work of God and let God use your hands that have been made clean to offer spiritual sacrifices that are now acceptable through Jesus Christ, not through your work, not through my work, not through church or religion or spirituality, but through the finished work of the very Son of God who gave his life for us. Go serve Jesus this week because you've been made clean. God's covenant relationship is a gift of grace. So we want to learn to live this morning. We do this every week. We don't want to just learn to learn, but we want to learn to live. So three questions as we conclude. Based on what we've studied this morning, my first question is, is this, has Jesus made you clean? Has there been a time in your life when by faith you turned to Christ? I'm not asking, have you been to church and rubbed up against holy things? I'm asking, have you put, fin have you put faith in the finished work of Jesus? Because the holiness of God does not become yours indirectly, it must become yours directly. It must be, the, the theological term is imputed. It must be gifted to you. It must be given to you through the one and only Son of God who is himself holy. Has Jesus made you clean? And if in your mind you're thinking, I'm not sure, today, right now, by faith, trust Jesus. Trust him. Because it is only through Christ's work that you can be made clean. Don't trust your past and your work and all the spiritual things you did. Jesus is saying to you, follow me. And it's time for you to say, yes, I'll follow you. And from that moment on, you've got a promise. If you will trust Jesus by faith today, God says, I will bless you. My second question, for those of us who have put faith in Christ, my second question is this, where have you been striving where you should be resting? Where have you been working, thinking that your work is somehow going to earn you greater favor with God and grow you and sanctify you and give you better standing with God? You know that there's no algorithm for salvation, but you think there's an algorithm for sanctification. If that's you, stop striving. Start resting. You say, well, John, does God still want us to do a work for him? Well, yeah. We studied that in the book of James, that faith without works is dead. But it's not a work that is trying to earn something. It is a work because everything has already been earned through Christ. Huge difference. So if you're striving to earn something from God, stop. Start resting. Where do you need to start resting? And then number three, who needs this gift of grace? Who do you know that does not know? You've received the gift of grace you have the promise from God that from this day on, I'm going to bless you. But who do you know that does not yet know 
See, God has called us to take the gift of grace to those who don't know and share it with them. Don't hoard the precious gift of the gospel. The gospel is the one gift that you don't lose the more you give it away. Just give it away. Share it, tell it, say it, give it to somebody. The results of what they do with that gift are not up to you. Trust God to work in their heart, but share the precious gift of God's grace that through Christ they can have a relationship with God as well and have their sins forgiven. Who needs this gift of grace? Every one of us are called to be that salt and to be that light and to make a difference in the world around us. God's not attaching strings. All that does is produce an insecure relationship when we think, does God love me today? Does he not love me today? Does he love me today? Does he not love me today? That is not the kind of relationship that God gives to his people. It is a gift of grace with unconditional blessing that he bestows upon us through Christ. Can we pray together? Father, we are so grateful for your word. Thank you for this paragraph tucked away in the minor prophets of the Old Testament that is a reflection of your character that is the same yesterday, today, and forever that you have always been and you will always be a God who is gracious, who is generous, who gives the gift of relationship unconditionally. I pray that if there's one here under the sound of my voice who has not yet turned to Christ, that even now they would lay aside their striving and lay aside their effort and trust Jesus by faith. But if there is a follower of Christ, a child, a son or daughter of yours, and they've trusted Jesus, but now they think that the way through is different from the way in, and they're trying to strive and work and earn and merit and figure out this code that they want to crack, I pray that they would just stop and rest and trust. May your will be done among us. God, your mercy is more. It's so much greater than anything that we could ever do. And so we thank you for all that you have done. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. To find out more about City Point Church, visit us online at citypointaz.com. You can also find us on social media at citypointaz. Be sure to leave a review, subscribe, and share this podcast with your friends. Now from us here at City Point Church... Go seeking to live on mission for the glory of God with this truth stamped over your life that you are loved.